It's always nice when she's home from college now, isn't it? Don't you think? Blessing. See someone who's devoted themselves to the Lord and their youth and especially gained that level of proficiency for his honor. It's the way it should be. Well, the name of Jesus is the name that's on the lips of millions of people in the world and has been on the lips of millions of people in the world. And how do we know who Jesus was? Better said, how do we know who Jesus is? Well, we have the Bible. And specifically in the Bible, we have four miniature biographies of the basic story about Jesus, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And we've studied, if you've been with us, we studied Matthew 1 through 4. And it's Matthew who was a tax collector who met Jesus tell, and became a, a very close follower, a disciple of Jesus telling about who Jesus was. When he does this, he goes back into the Old Testament and he proves with Old Testament quotations that Jesus wasn't just your regular guy, just your average person, or even a great moral teacher, but that Jesus was actually God come in the flesh who'd been predicted in the Old Testament. So Jesus came as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He told amazing things in chapters 1 through 4, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that he's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Just incredible, amazing things about Jesus. I'm just scratching the surface of that. So now, since we know these things are true, we know what we know about who Jesus is, when we, we, we arrive in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which is often called the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably really the Sermon on the Slope overlooking the lake, but nonetheless, it's what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and it was the primary main teaching of Jesus Christ. So when we think about who Jesus was, it's kind of like, well then, what did he teach? Nobody ever was like Jesus. He's, there's only one God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who Himself is God, came into this world, took on human flesh, and yet He was every bit God at the same time. He's the only one who ever did that, the only one who ever could be that. So when He opened His mouth to speak, it's important that you understand what He had to say. Most people would agree that a synopsis of the central truth of Jesus' message is, that's a cr- to crunch it into a, a Cliff's Notes version of the central truth of the teaching of Jesus Christ, is in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what I intend to preach on today. We're going to go through the whole thing today in, in a kind of a Google Earth view, way up high, so that you see the entire Sermon on the Mount in, in one thing. Please don't leave. You know, Stay with me here. You'll, you'll be glad you did, because you'll get this in your heart. Now, here's what a, one of the most influential things I ever heard that helped me in preaching is a quote I'm going to read you right now. What I want you to do is I want you to apply this quote that I'm going to give you to Jesus. We're going to look at a sermon by Jesus. So Jesus Christ, God's Son, come in the flesh, never had a beginning, Born in a baby's body, grew up in a sinlessly perfect, as a sinlessly perfect man. When he came to his public presentation, he gathers disciples in a place where everybody can hear him. A multitude comes to him, and he opens his mouth, and he teaches them. This is what he teaches them. He gives a, a sermon. Now, we, what we have is a synopsis of the sermon, a little short version of the sermon. If we were to read this top to bottom, it would only be about ten minutes. I'm here to tell you, Jesus didn't preach... 10 minutes, okay? 
If you're taking notes, write that down, all right? want you to know that. He had a lot more to say than that. This isn't like word-for-word dictation of his sermon. This is a synopsis that Matthew's given us of the basic teaching of his sermon. You can see it in other places in forms where he would, like often an itinerant preacher would do, would say some of the same things in the same or similar ways in other places. Jesus did that too. This is the Sermon on the Mount. So my question would be this. If this is Jesus' like main teaching, what was the heart of it? What was the heart of Jesus' main teaching? What was the big idea of Jesus' main teaching? This is a good question, right? What is the central truth of Jesus' sermon here? And if we can understand what the central truth of Jesus' sermon is, because I believe that this is, there's a preacher from England who pastored for a long time in America, at, in, in the city of New York, and uh, he, he did the Yale lectures on preaching many years ago. And uh, the book, there was a book that was written based on his Yale lectures on preaching, which is one of the best books on preaching I've ever read. It's by John Henry Jowett called The Preacher, His Life and Work. When I was a young pastor, I read a section of this book, and it stuck in my mind and influenced my life, and I think it's influenced every message I've ever preached. There is this one quote that I want to give to you today, and what I'd like you to do is I'd like you in your heart and your mind to apply it to the message that Jesus gave. And we're going to ask the question, what's the central truth of Jesus' message? Here's what, here's what Jowett said. I am of the conviction that no sermon is ready for preaching or ready for writing out until we can express its theme in a short, pregnant sentence as clear as crystal. Jowett's saying, don't even think about writing your sermon until you can say it in one clear sentence. When I train other young guys and I coach other young guys about preaching, the one thing I will say to them over and over again is that just before they get ready to preach, I say, what are you going to tell them? And then if they mumble around and they give me a paragraph, it's almost like, go back and sit down. You're not ready to preach yet. You're not ready to preach until you can say it in one clear sentence. Maybe you can say, what do you want them to do or believe going out the door? What is the main truth that you want to embed in their souls? Jowett is saying that. He says, no sermon is ready to go until we can express its theme in a short, pregnant sentence as clear as crystal. And I find the getting of that sentence the hardest, most exacting, most fruitful labor in my study. To compel oneself to fashion that sentence, to dismiss every word that's vague, ragged, ambiguous, to think oneself through to a form of words which defines the theme with scrupulous exactness, this is surely one of the most vital and essential factors in the making of a sermon. And I do not think any sermon is ready to be preached or even written until that sentence has emerged clear and lucid as a cloudless moon. That was an enormously influential paragraph in that reading when I was a young guy. I tried it. I, I like to believe there's never a time that I preach that you couldn't say, I got the central truth of that message. And that beyond that, you could say, and I see that is what the Bible says. This is the central truth of the message. And it's not just Ken's opinion, it's what the Bible actually says. And there's always a third thing I'm thinking, and that is, so then, now that we have shown you a truth that's rooted in the Word of God, what are you going to do about it? Now, when you apply this to the Sermon on the Mount, I think what you find is that there's a place I can show you where Jesus comes to the climax of this message, and he gives you the central truth. I want to show you the central truth of that message. And and then what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to think through the entire Sermon on the Mount. 
in a, in a way, it's a great thing to do here as we come to the first of the year because the Sermon on the Mount was probably intended, this truth is probably intended for us to use as a kind of a self-evaluative tool. In other words, the, the way that Matthew used it, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience who considered themselves really righteous. He considered them, he, he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience who considers themselves really righteous, like they've got it figured out. And the top guys of this righteousness scheme would be guys like scribes and Pharisees, the professional religious guys. Now what Matthew is going to do is he's going to say, okay, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament righteousness. And now here's what Jesus said. Jesus is going to say, this is what righteousness is. And when he's done saying that, people that normally think they're righteous are going to be going, "Uh uh-oh, I might be in trouble. Because, I mean, I'm over the top righteous doing all this stuff. But what Jesus is going to say is lots more demanding than that. And that, I think, you'll see. And if you look in chapter 5 and verse 20, you'll see what I believe to be the central truth of, of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I'll read it to you. Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus says, the center of this message, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's interesting. Here we have Jesus gathering this crowd. They're coming to hear him. Some of them are deeply committed disciples. Others are like curious types because he's done miracles. He's done all kinds of things. They're kind of like hanging out, looking to see what he's done. He's going to open his mouth. He's going to speak to them. Now, the, 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 the normal rabbis of the day would, would be, for their authority, quoting other rabbis. They would, they would not have their own authority. They wouldn't claim their own authority. They wouldn't say, here's what I say. They would never do that. That's not how they would teach. And that's why when Jesus taught and he said, you've heard it said by them, but I'm telling you this, it was a profound claim of authority. A pro- because Jesus obviously is entitled to a profound claim of authority because he happened to be God. But over and over again through this message, he'll say, you've heard it said, but I tell you, as if he was the final authority. And if you look at the very end of Matthew, chapter 7, the end of Matthew, excuse me, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, notice what it says in verse 28. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority not as the scribes. The scribes would not have taken it upon themselves to say, I'm the authority, because they would have been immediately discredited. Jesus, however, had the, had the right to take on personal authority and saying, I'm the original word. This is what I say. They said this, but I tell you this. And then he said, if you go back to Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not go to heaven. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that would have been really perplexing, disturbing, shocking news to people who are on a self-righteousness track, wouldn't it? In other words, if they're trying hard to like, do a bunch of resolutions or be really good or be really religious or try really hard or be really sincere in order for God to look at them and go, okay, you're the good guys, you get to go to heaven. But you bad guys, you're going to have to go to hell. If they were, if they were on that, that's what we kind of call the self-righteousness track. The self-righteousness program is when you're saying, I'm going to try to be really sincere, and then I'm going to try to be really good, and then God's going to say, okay, you're in because you tried really hard. Self-righteousness, that's what that is. Now, Jesus is going to 
blow the self-righteousness track completely out of the water because he's going to go to the top of that and go, unless you're better than scribes and Pharisees, in the chance you're going to go, to, you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And they're thinking, are you joking me? Scribes and Pharisees have it together. They are the religious of the religious. They got more rules than God himself. And they really did. They really did. They had the rules of God, then they had the rules. They added to the rules of God. People still, sometimes, they still do that because they have this weight, this sense of this gravity of their own guilt, and they're thinking, I've got to try really hard. Jesus is going to come along with this sermon, and he's going to say it's exactly, it's counterintuitive. It's exactly the opposite of what you thought. You don't try harder. You surrender in a deep way. You enter into the kingdom with, an, with a profession of absolute spiritual poverty, saying, I don't have, God, I'm a sinner I'm, uh, my, my inward thoughts are not pleasing to you. My life is full of dark sin in the past. I know that I'm going to still sin in the future. I don't know what I'm going to do. Is there anything you can do to help me? That is how you enter into the kingdom. Not going before God and professing your innocence. Because you know better, and he knows better than that. Not going before God and presenting your religion. He's not impressed with your religion. But going before God and confessing your absolute spiritual poverty. So we look at the Sermon on the Mount here. I took this little thing. You've seen these things, a word cloud. This is actually the entire Sermon on the Mount. And I just took a kind of a screenshot. Sorry about the little frame there. I took a little screenshot of this to show you. This is the entire Sermon on the Mount. And what it, ha- what it does is it gives more weight to words that are used more often or that are emphasized. And so you can obviously see here there's going to be an emphasis on the Father. Jesus is coming along and he says, you want to know about God, I'm going to tell you about him. An emphasis on heaven, an emphasis on blessing and other things. I thought that would be interesting for you to see. Now the real question that's hanging in the air here is in chapter 5 and verse 20. Are you, do you have this true righteousness? Now, these is, again, this is like he's shooting at people who are saying, hey, I'm righteous. He's saying, are you sure about that? Let me tell you what true righteousness is like. Do you have it? And I would say to you, you're going to take your Bible in your lap this morning, and the remaining time that we have, we're going to work our way through, as far as we can get in the time that we have, we're going to work our way through the entire Sermon on the Mount, just peppering our own soul with questions about, so, do you have this kind of righteousness? Do I have this kind of righteousness? And, and I think it would be a, a wonderful thing to do at the beginning of the year to, to ask ourselves this. And so here's an outline of what we're going to do, and I'll just show you this. We're, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, are what we often call the Beatitudes. Blessed, 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 this kind of uh, heavenly peace and happiness. Blessed are the poor, and so forth. Remember, the, that's called the Beatitudes. And in a sense, they are a description of the way that you enter into the kingdom the right way. The attitude of heart among a person who really is entering the kingdom or really does have true righteousness. And then from chapter 5, verse 13, it goes into a thing that we often call the similitudes, where the, uh, the, um, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and the light of the world were like similitudes. So you have chapter 5, verse 1 through 12, the Beatitudes, how you enter the kingdom. So you, do I have true righteousness? Did I get into the kingdom the right way? And then secondly, am I morally and ethically and spiritually distinct? A simple way to say that is, am I inside out different than other people? Am I inside out different? It's not so much a comparison with us and other people. It's a comparison with God's holy standard. 
And a question is not, not like, do I have the outside kind of lined up so I look good and religious and so forth, but am I inside out different? Is there a moral and ethical and inside out spiritual difference? Chapter 5 or 13 through chapter 7 and verse 12 just go like a, like a machine gun. Jesus just goes right after. It's like he's just moving right down through your soul, just exposing one thing after another. You ever met somebody who thought they were good because there were a couple of bad things they managed to avoid in their life? So like, like I don't steal. You, you, you don't steal, but like there's other things, but you're not talking about that because you know Jesus was, would move way through and just be so thorough and complete that it would just be like he is mowing down the opposition, if you will, in the message he's exposing these things. It's not that he's mean about it, but he is very direct and very clear. You're going to see that in chapter 5, verse 13, through chapter 7 and verse 12. And then in chapter 7, this, so these are kind of like a, a, kind of a threefold outline based on questions of the whole sermon. I wanted you to see this in one swoop because you understand it all better if you see the entire thing. Instead of going up really close and, and drilling down in one little spot, you can easily miss the whole thing. I think it's so important for us to see the whole thing. So you this week, take your Bible, read Matthew 5, 6, 7. Kind of read it over and over again. You can read it very quickly. And so that you get the sweep of this, you'll see that it's all one argument. See, in other words, at first, when you look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you go, oh, look here, it talks about adultery here. Oh, and it talks about worry over here. Oh, and it talks about giving over here. And over here, it talks about fasting. And, and over here, it's unre- it's like, it just seems like maybe it's unrelated. And it's just a bunch of things that Jesus has thrown on the wall. That is not true at all. Jesus is focused in this sermon. He's going after one thing. In that he's saying, this is what true righteousness that's imparted to you, given to you as a gift by God, ends up looking like in your life. Do you have that or not? That's the message, right? So these questions, did I enter the kingdom the right way? Am I really different inside out? And have I been influenced by false teaching? And these are the questions that we're going to look at as we go through. And that would be chapter 7, verse 13, through chapter 7, verse 27. And the last two verses are just a little commentary. But basically, there are going to be three things in that section that we'll see too. Let's see how much of this that we can cover today. Are you growing in true righteousness? I want you to just hear from the Lord on this to examine yourself. Scriptures say, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. This is a good thing for us to always do. Don't, don't start by asking, how good am I or how religious am I? Am I in the faith? Do I have the righteousness of Christ? Am I born again? Are you? That's a great question to ask. And the scriptures say that we should examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith, that we should test ourselves, 2 Corinthians 3, 15. Read this one. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, don't you know, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The scriptures are going to say over and over again that if you're truly born again, a child of God, a genuine Christian, there will be some evidence of growing righteousness in your life. Now listen, listen to me, please, very carefully. And if you're a Christian, you know this already, hear it the way I'm saying it now. It will help you be a better testimony to other people. But here's Because maybe you're sitting there, you're going, Pastor, you're going to say it, and I know what you're going to say. It's like, yeah, you need to be good at telling other people that. Because around the water cooler, people are clueless about this, okay? I didn't say, in order to get to heaven, you've got to get your ducks all lined up, you've got to get all this righteousness in your life. I didn't say that. Because Jesus doesn't say that, and we'll point that out in a moment. But I did say this, if you are genuinely, by a miracle of God, born again, and he's given you his righteousness, there's going to be growing evidence of actual, holy, living righteousness in your life. And if it's not there, you, you want to be careful not to call yourself saved. 
I mean, make sure you're saved. That's why 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, because it's a possibility. Neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or homosexuals or sodomites or thieves or covetous or drunkards or revilers or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. I don't have, didn't have room for it on the slide, but it goes on, verse 11 says, And such were some of you, and you're washed, and you're sanctified, and you're justified. So you're not without hope, even if you're on that list right there. But you go to Christ, and He gives you His righteousness, and then you begin to grow in that. Hebrews 12, and verse 14, Pursue peace with all people, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Only people who see the Lord are people that have growth and holiness in their life. Shows that they really have genuine righteousness. And I'm going to continue some of these. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows those who are His. Everyone who names the name of Christ, depart from iniquity. Not appropriate to be involved in willful sin, iniquity, if you name the name of Christ. In other words, Christian, real Christian people have evidence of growing holiness in their life. Titus 1.6 says they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. In other words, it's, it's, not, it's not just you talk and you say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. It's like there's evidence in your life. Now, I don't want to disturb you unless God wants you to be disturbed. But, but I want to say this to you. Think about this. Right now, some of you feel heaviness, and you're like, man, that, this is kind of depressing. You can look at these one of two ways. You can look at it like, and I think you should look at it this way sometimes. You can look at this like the law that condemns you, and that's probably a really good thing. Because that's going to make you want to run to the cross when you hear about it. Get it? You can also look at it in another way. If God says, this is what I expect, then it means this is what is possible once you're saved and the Holy Spirit starts working in your life. You can expect these things to happen. And it's not that you have to resolve to do it. It's that He's going to do that in you in a miraculous and growing way. Now, that's pretty cool. So you're sitting here heavy. Good. Let the work of heaviness do its work on you. But then also remember there's like a silver lining behind this cloud. If you'll run to the cross, these are the kind of things that can happen and can be true in you. But, but it says if you don't have a new life, you're not a Christian. Second Corinthians 5.17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation and old things are passing away and everything's becoming new. Total radical inside-out change. This is what we're looking for. This is what should happen if you're, you have true righteousness. There's a few more passages. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you keep my commandments. 1 John 2, 9, 9 says, He who says he's in the light and he hates his brother, is, a, is an example, he's in darkness. So in other words, it's possible to say you have righteousness, but when we look at your life, we're like, no, that person doesn't. There's no evidence of that in their life. And then one more. Uh, from the English Standard Version, gives a gives an idea of the 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 Greek verbs are no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. I think that captures the idea there in 1 John. If you're born again, it doesn't mean that you will never, ever sin again. But you will not make a continual practice of sinning without a heaviness on you. As a matter of fact, if you, would, if you want to picture this, you would look in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is written by an apostle, Paul, and he's describing in really kind of vivid terms the struggle he has with sin in his own life. He says, it's like a body of death, and who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Then he says, thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. So that struggle should be happening. It's not that you don't ever struggle with sin or fail, but there is a struggle. There's not just a surrender, and there's some evidence in your life of growing righteous. Okay, let's stop right here. Before we get into this, and let's ask the question, in your life, is there evidence of growing righteousness in your life? 
Now, keep that in mind as we kind of go through now. Did you enter the kingdom the right way? And I'm going to just go very fast through this, because next week we're going to cover all of this in the Beatitudes. This is kind of a, a, a thumbnail sketch, a list of the Beatitudes. And I want you to think of this in terms of how did you get into the kingdom? But in, in other words, this is the way I believe what Jesus is saying. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word here, poor, is the abject, bowed-down poverty of spirit. In other words, you don't get into the kingdom by going to God and going, look at what I have to present to you. And then he goes, I want you on my team because you are very special. You go to God going, you know, God, that I am spiritually completely and totally a bankrupt beggar. Those people will get into the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And then because of that, you're mourning. In other words, uh, because of your sin, the gravity of your sin causes you to mourn. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. The crushing weight of your sin produces a meekness in you. You don't go to God demanding stuff because you're meek now. Chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 5. Then you have a growing spiritual hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's what will happen. And then since you turn to God from sin, you also... Verse 7, are merciful, obviously, to others, because you've been extended mercy. And pure in heart, or sincere in heart, verse 8. And a peacemaker, because you've made peace with God, you make peace with others. And then what will happen is, if you're genuinely a Christian, there's going to be pressure on your life. All of a sudden, you're going to say, like a sister said to me today, I went for a job, I didn't want to work on the Lord's Day, I wanted to go to church on the Lord's Day. They said, the interview is over. And they sent her away. A brand new Christian going to be baptized tonight. And I just said to her, sister, you watch for God to bless your life now because you made a decision that you wouldn't work on the Lord's Day. She didn't want to take uh, the work on the Lord's Day because she wanted to be in church. She needed to grow. She's a new Christian. God will honor that. God will bless that. And we're not talking about works of necessity here, but, but um, the point of it is in verses uh, 10 and 11 in a really profound way, it says if you're really saved, you can expect there to be back pressure on you or even persecution. And then the other thing that will happen is in that persecution you'll have joy because you, you'll recognize still that you're headed for the kingdom. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now here's the deal. Here's a, a little story that will help you. Guy goes, travels to another country. I'm just kind of making part of this up, okay? Travels to another country. He meets holy men, base of the mountain. And a holy man says to him from some other religion, he goes, Christians and Buddhists and others, we're all alike. There's God. God is at the peak of the mountain. And we all have a different way to make our way up to God. You have your way, and your way is Christ. And my way is Buddha, and another person has his way. They're just all different ways to make their way up the mountain to God. And the man says, no, you don't understand. That's not what Christianity teaches at all. God is on the mountain, and we don't make our way up to him at all. He came down the mountain to us. And it was in the person, that would have been a great amen spot right there. He came down the mountain to us. Amen. That's how that's supposed to work. I say stuff like that, and then you go, amen. Then we shout and clap our hands. I got to, people, be patient with me here. All right. So God told me that one. He said, don't tell people to say amen. I said, I can't help it. I'm sorry about that. That's just like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to back up so that you can get this right. Okay. I'm going to coach you a little bit. Now think about this. We didn't make our way up the mountain to God. Jesus came down the mountain to us. Amen. Thank you. I feel better now. Jesus came down the mountain and he died on the cross of Calvary for our sin. That's not religion. It's a totally different thing. You're kidding. I'm sitting at the base of the mountain and I can't make my way up because even my religious efforts, I can't go up to God. God came down to me in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the Beatitudes are really kind of saying there. Beautiful thing. So then, 
That's a good question. Did I enter the kingdom the right way? Here's another question. Is my life really different? This is a lot of material here to go over, but be encouraged because you, I know, have a New Year's resolution that you are not going to miss a single Sunday. And if you have the death, if you have the bubonic plague, you will listen to the podcast. So you're going to get all of this material as we go through nice and slow. And we'll come and visit you when you're better. Um, and we'll go through this re- nice and slow. So whatever you, we can cover today, don't be frustrated with me because of the speed. That's why I kind of use those slides here to help out. But the Barna statistics, the Barna guy was his statistics, right? Um, George Barna. So I'm not sure how much of that we should trust. But, but there are many statistics that that are coming out of uh, studies done with evangelical people who profess to be evangelical Christians. And here the, statistic, the conclusion of the statistics is that often people who say they're evangelical Christians, their lives are not different than people who don't say they're evangelical Christians. Now we have, we have wonderful examples right here. There are people sitting in the house today. I can think of a couple. There are at least two or three families or individuals that are right here in, here today because they watched Christians from Evangel and they wanted to know what made them tick and they came. So praise God for that. But this is what we're talking about here. Our lives should be so different. Now, why, how do we know that? Look what it says in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Then it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand it gives light to the, all those who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Which is to say, you have a clear and distinct testimony. You're like salt. You're like light. That's what it says. And then you so love the law of God that it that condemned you at one time, you love it. Is this true about you? Do you remember what it was like when you say, hey, don't like, lay that on me? And now that you know God and you love God, you're like, you hungry for God's law. Look what it says in verse 17. Do not think I came to destroy the law or prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven For For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will no case enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying to them, they don't have the last word on the law. I do. They didn't fulfill the law. I did. Jesus fulfills the law in perfection. And then he gives us his righteousness as a gift when we believe in him. And that makes us love the law of God that once condemned us. And the law of God is a treasure. Read the Old Testament. Read the Psalms over and over. Oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation day and night. The law no longer then condemns the person who has the righteousness of Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ, so you love to read the law of God. But before you have the righteousness of Christ, you read the law of God, you're like, ah, I've missed all these. You realize you have the righteousness of Christ, you love the law of God. This is true. This is one of the ways you're different. And then your heart attitudes have changed. And you can just see these... um, Hard attitudes about personal harmony. Look at chapter uh, 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Jesus says, you thought it was just if you kill somebody, you go to hell. I say, if you say you're a fool, that's enough of a sin to go to hell. The person who has true righteousness in his life, has the same attitude, the spirit 
of concern and regard for people that he doesn't, not only does he murder them, he doesn't want to call them names, is evidence of that in his life. There is a hard attitude of moral purity. And you see that in verse 27 and, and through verse 30. You've heard that it was said by those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. For your eye, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than that your whole body be cast into hell. If you are morally and ethically distinct, you have an attitude of personal harmony, regard for people. You have an attitude of moral purity, even in your secret thought life. You have an attitude of moral, marital fidelity. You take the marriage vows seriously. Chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality or fornication, causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a woman who is divorced, commits adultery this is the word of the lord jesus said your your attitude toward marriage is different than people in the world would you agree different then you have attitudes of verbal honesty chapter 5 verse 33 again uh, you've heard that it was said by those of old you shall not swear falsely but there's this uh, there was this um this um fast talking going on where a person could actually say they're promising but they're really not promising they're just not verbally honest that's what this passage talks about What Jesus is saying is, if you have my righteousness and then you do little fancy ways of lying, your heart is going to be heavy and you're going to grow in honesty until eventually I take that out of you. In a glorified state, there will be none of that in us at all. Attitudes of personal harmony, moral purity, marital fidelity, verbal honesty, gentle humility, verses 38 through 42. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. This is just shocking stuff. And we'll teach this in specifics as we get to it. But the idea is basically Jesus is saying, you thought with all your rules that you had dialed in on righteousness. And I'm telling you that even at your very best with these rules, I demand more than that. You understand? He demands more than that because he demands absolute perfection. Look at verse 48. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what Jesus is doing is a severe mercy. He's saying, oh, you want to do the law? You want to do right? Okay, I'll show you what that looks like. This is what I demand. Not just you don't commit adultery, you don't have impure thoughts in your secret thought life. Not only do you not kill people, you, you don't cut them off in traffic. You, you, you see what I mean? And so you got all this. So everybody's at the end of this going, then what am I going to do? And he goes, thank you. That's where we wanted you to be. Completely, spiritually bankrupt, looking to me, Jesus, to his righteousness and his work on Calvary. Am I making sense? Are you getting this? It's wonderful, isn't it? And an attitude of Christian charity, chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, there you say, it was heard, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you and do good for, to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. 
This is Matthew recording this, who was a tax collector. And if you greet your brethren only, who do you do? What do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do that. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What do we have here? Good question is what we have. Jesus is like dialing in on our souls. Is this the kind of righteousness that you have? Do you have a distinct testimony? Do you love the law of God? Do you have hard attitudes that are completely changed in all these areas? Personal harmony, moral purity, marital fidelity, verbal honesty, gentle humility, Christian charity. There's more. <laughs> is your worship sincere? In chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, he talks about three kinds of worship. He talks about secret giving, and he talks about praying, and he talks about fasting. And he's saying over and over again, do you do these so that people will see you, or do you do them so that you'll be rewarded by your Father who sees you in secret and rewards you openly? He asked this question. It's a great question to ask. Is your worship sincere? Chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, a wonderful section there. Do you have a whole new perspective on money? A believer has a whole new perspective on what's valuable and, and on money and how he uses his money and, and how he thinks about money and, and material possessions and worry and all that goes with that and greed. And that's what it talks about in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. Are you free from temporal values? Kind of a, a variation on the, on the same theme. And that is, are your values temporary or temporal or here? Or, or do you really think about eternal things? Chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, talk about that. Do you love others? Chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, a specific statement about that. Are you eager to condemn other people? Or do you genuinely love people? And then if you look in chapter 7, verses 13 through 27, and forgive me for skipping over reading the passage in 6. I'm looking forward to teaching through every single word of that. When you get to chapter 7 in this section, verses 13 through 27, you've got really kind of three things that you see here. You've got false teaching, you've got false teachers, and you have false belief, false converts. And you got really strong warnings and stories that Jesus tells. Be careful that you have not been exposed to false teaching, and we all have. Be careful that you are not listening to false teachers, and we all do. Be careful that you aren't a false convert. The, Jesus is going to say in this section, he's going to say, the way to heaven is very narrow, and very few people find the way to heaven. That's what he says. Jesus says that. Main teaching. He says, but the way to destruction, to hell, is a broad path, and many people... Go down the broad path to destruction. So this is what he says. Very sobering, very thought-provoking. Another way to say it would be the self-righteousness path is wide and it ends in hell. The self-righteousness path is wide and it ends in hell. The, the righteousness of Christ path is narrow and very few people find it. I hope today that as you're listening to me, that the Spirit of God is working in your soul and that you're, the lights are starting to come on in your soul, and you're finding the narrow path of Jesus Christ alone to God, and that this righteousness... You, know, you ever heard of ambient noise? It's noise you don't always notice, but it's there, ambient noise. The culture has an ambient noise of error going all the time. You may not sit at the feet of some guru that's teaching you wrong. You may not go to a temple of some false teacher. It may be just that, you know, with your remote control, you're going by and you're listening to somebody talking on a talk show or a popular person or, you know, most, most people really get their theology from cultural icons, not really from teachers. You know, they get their theology from football players, which is a little frightening. Although I've heard some of them afterward, you know, quoting the scripture, you know they know the Lord. They get their philosophy or their theology from talk show hosts or, or from psychologists or popular writers or are you know, people like, that are real popular in the culture, rock star types, you know, or you know, cultural icons, 
If you think about it, if you watch the lives of cultural icons, they're like usually, not always, but you know, usually they're in, they're in terrible disarray. And yet, because we admire them and because they're hip and they're cool, we kind of look at them and we go, I like what they think. And we, that's the ambient noise of philosophy of our culture. And it's going all the time. And I know you're sitting there thinking, I don't listen to false teachers. I don't go to you know, some kind of false god temple. I don't bow down to actual idols or anything like that. Be very, very careful because Satan is so subtle that these noises are ambient in our culture. They're just speaking all the time. And we're being influenced by those. And so Jesus is saying, if you listen to false teachers, you'll have a false conversion and you will not be saved in the end. Now I must read this to you. Chapter 7, hear this. And we'll come, we'll come back to this. And I hope you'll be here when we do. Listen to what Jesus says. This is the teaching of Jesus Christ. Not everyone, verse 21, chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. A lot of people don't say Lord, Lord. These are people who actually profess some religion, maybe even calling Jesus Lord. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, don't misunderstand. He's not saying in order to go to heaven, you have to do the will of my Father. He's saying if you're on your way to heaven, you will do the will of my Father in heaven. Your salvation is by grace through faith alone, justification by faith, evidence you do what God says. Don't say you're a Christian if you don't do what God says. That's not right. This is what Jesus is saying. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And then he gives this vivid picture of building a house on a rock and, a, a, and then a flood coming. And he says the people that, get, that, that build their house on sand and the flood comes and wipes away their house, those are the people who listened to me and they heard me, but they didn't do what I said. That's what he's saying. And so then you have this. Have you been influenced by false teaching? The way of righteousness is narrow and very few find it. There are many false teachers, 15 through 20. There are many false converts, verses 21 through 23. Notice this. Do you act on what you know? Because hearing the truth is not enough. That's what it says. Listen to this. Notice he says, those of you who practice lawlessness, do you act on what you know? Hearing the truth is not enough. Verse chapter 7, verse 24 says, he does those things. Verse, chapter 7, verse 25 says, he does not do. It doesn't say he doesn't hear. He said he doesn't do them. Do you see what I'm saying? A, a righteous person is not a person who can just say all the right stuff. And a righteous person is not a person who can just, he can just repeat all the right things that he's been taught. A righteous person is not a person who can say the right things. A righteous person is not a person who has heard the right things. A righteous person, the evidence is, is a person who does the right things. It's true. And the doing of righteousness, genuine righteousness, not self-righteousness, is a result of a miraculous work of God in them to save them and a series of miraculous works of the Holy Spirit to what we call to sanctify them. And now, for your favorite part of the message, the conclusion. Millions are deceived, and millions are on their way to hell. Some of you are. Some of your favorite people, the the most loved people that you know, are deceived and they're on their way to hell because they're on the self-righteousness track. That's what Jesus said. That's the teaching of Jesus. Unless your righteousness is a superior righteousness to the 
scribes and Pharisees who are at the top of the righteousness food chain, self-righteousness food chain. Unless you've got something going on that's different than that, you will never see heaven. You will never see the kingdom of heaven. Now you're a Christian and you're thinking, what's that have to do with me? Well, it's, don't assume you're a Christian, first of all. Don't assume. Lay this template on your life. And then it's a great place to be at the first of the year because if you're like I am, you kind of feel the heaviness of that, the weight of that. How many of you would just say, you know, when I read through that, I just thought, boy, I'm glad I'm saved and I got that put together. Or did you go, I'm going to have to have more help. Hmm? Yeah. And there is help for one who gets on his knees, the sister who gets on her knees. And maybe for the first time in her life, she says, you know, I've been trying really hard and I'm not doing any better. Year after year, I try harder and I don't really do that much better. So this year, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to get on my knees and surrender to you. And I'm going to plead for your mercy and your blood on my sin. And then I'm going to ask for your spirit to indwell me and fill me and continually fill me so that the righteousness of Christ becomes evident in my life. Second Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Galatians 6, 3 and 4 says, If anyone thinks himself to be something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each, of, each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing. Or another way to say it would be the way Jesus said it, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you have New Year's resolutions, more power to you. That's not a bad idea. It's a good idea. But a New Year's resolution is like me saying to God, God, you, you've worked in my life for me to aspire to do good things, and so I want to do good things. I want to get up early and read my Bible, and I want to exercise more. That's good. And I, and I want to be nice to my wife and good to my kids, and I, I want to give this money to you, and I, I want to stop doing this and start doing that. And these are not bad things. To have a spirit that, that, that resolves or aspires but where you go from that is very important. It's like, do you really think that it's just by your own human desire and effort that you can have a, a blessed year and a blessed eternity? It's not that way. It's probably better to recognize this. Here's a, here's a resolution I want to suggest to you today. If you're an unbeliever, resolve to run to Jesus Christ and just throw yourself upon him for salvation. If you're an unbeliever, just resolve. That's the one resolve you need. You don't need any other resolution than that. That will be a life-changing, life-altering, completely miraculous transformation. You run to Jesus and you say to him, I need to be saved. If you're a believer, then I would say, here's a resolution for you. Go back to him over and over again. When you see that you fall short in your own practice of righteousness so that the work of sanctification, you see that? Here's how the law works. Jesus gave the law. Jesus kind of dialed in and gave a more thorough teaching of the law in a way. And for an unbeliever, it works to condemn him in a merciful way, because then he doesn't just go on in his, like, I'm a happy pagan ignorance thing, but he runs to God and he goes, oh, God, help me. And it's like, he's saved. The way the law of God works for a believer, if you're a believer, is you look at it and you have two thoughts. One is, oh, God, that these things would be true about me. Help me, Holy Spirit. And he does. And the other thing is, you're going, you mean really that that quality could be in my life? Yes, he says, that quality can be in your life. So as a believer, the law of God is precious to you because you're saying I, I want it to expose my sin and drive me to the Holy Spirit and to sanctification and I want it to inspire my heart that I, that I can live in this way. It's also a, in, a, in a way it's a simple list of things that really do please God. People who love God 
They want to please him. So what's your resolution today? I would suggest that you resolve to run to Jesus Christ.